Okay, so we're going to continue this morning with our study of the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, and we'll be looking at part two of the provision for salvation. Um, if you were here last week, if you were in the study last week, Will walked us through first the depravity of man and his present state before God, that of being dead in his trespasses and sins, enslaved to his sinful nature and awaiting certain judgment from God. And with that backdrop, Will then taught us about God's sovereign grace in election. That is, God in eternity past choosing a people from sinful humanity upon whom he would have mercy rather than giving them the eternal justice for their rebellion that they so richly deserved. And how an understanding of that, of God's mercy in electing us as his own, should on the one hand cause great humiliation and on the other hand great rejoicing. So we should be humbled by that reality and rejoice mightily in light of that. So this morning, we're going to continue looking at the provision for salvation by focusing on the work of the Trinity in the salvation of sinners. Uh, there's a lot to say on this. There's a lot that I'm not going to say on this. So when I'm looking at this work of the Trinity in salvation, primarily it's just going to be in justification, okay, uh, as we think about the application of that. Um, in coming weeks, when we get into the other topics, we're going to talk about perseverance and God's role in persevering us and keeping us and bringing us all the way home to glory. So let's, let's dive in here and see what we can, we can do. Before we think about the Trinity's work in salvation, becoming new creatures, us becoming new creatures, I want to just throw out a few passages that talk about the Trinity's work in creation itself. What we see from the scriptures is that creation was the work of the Father by the Son through the Holy Spirit. Okay, The work of the Father by the Son through the Holy Spirit. Let me show you a few verses that point to this reality. These aren't on your notes, so this is bonus these are bonus verses for you. Um, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.15 and 16 fills that in for us. He, referring to Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Okay, so it shows us the work of the Son. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Okay, so you have the Father working by the Son. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So just looking at a few of those verses helps us to see 
the work of the Trinity in creation. Okay? That'll be important now as we think about the role that they play in the new creation as well. So let's begin with looking first at the work that the Father performs. How the Father is presented to us in Scripture really is as the planner or the orchestrator of our salvation. I'll show you a few passages. This one will be uh, pretty familiar to us, having gone through Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Somebody can read this for us. Destined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Okay, so we, we go back here and we look at the aspect praise is being given to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, so this is a plan that was made before anything was created. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. Okay, so again, this is, this is the plan of God, and he's going to bring it to pass in space and time. 1 Peter verses 1 and 2 speak to this end as well. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And here you see the Trinity at work as well. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Okay, so that aspect of the Father working there according to the foreknowledge of the Father. So Peter's writing to these elect exiles, those who have been chosen. And we know from the rest of Scripture when were they chosen? Before the foundation of the world. And it says here, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's a very important term there, that term foreknowledge. It, it has its covenantal in its language. Okay? It doesn't just simply mean to know something beforehand. It's used in a covenantal context. And what it means is God's love for us beforehand. Okay? So it's God's unconditional love for us before anything is even brought into existence. It's deeply intimate when we contemplate the reality of it. And I want to show you a few verses that help us to see when we talk about the foreknowledge of God the Father, that root word in there, know or knowledge, how we see that being used in other places in Scripture, that helps to get a better understanding uh, that this means more than simply a knowledge of something. Genesis 4, 25 Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. So you don't have to read too far into that to know that knowing there meant something more than just something I know my wife, right, intellectually. There's an intimacy here that goes along with that. Very similarly, Jesus uses this term in Matthew 7.23. For those who are professing you know, they did all these great things for Jesus. You know, Lord, Lord. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, we know in this context, of course, it means more than just simple knowledge. Of course, Jesus knows everybody. He's the judge of heaven and earth. I was never in a covenantal relationship with you, evidenced by your practice of sinning. Okay? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So they're, they're continual. So here were, here were people, and you can think of it in our day as well. Here are people, Lord, Lord, professing Jesus as Lord, yet lives that are totally unchanged, just living in sin against God. And Jesus said, I never knew you. I was never in covenant with you. Okay, so that's another good example of that. And then Jesus says here in John 10, 27, and this is so important. I've mentioned this in the past, but sometimes like when I'm reading through verses and I, I see things that are there that I think, if I took this out, would it still make sense? So in other words, if I just read this, my sheep hear my voice, and then I took out that phrase and I know them, and then continue with, and they follow me, would that make sense? It would, right? My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. That makes sense. So why this, and I know them, right? There, there's confidence that Jesus is trying to build into his people. I'm in covenant with these that are my own, okay? And he goes on to show this. Right after this, he says, no one can pluck them out of my hand, and no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. So again, here's, here's that term, no, that helps us to see this aspect of the foreknowledge of God. That This is just mind-blowing, isn't it? Before anything was created, God the Father chose you to pour out his unconditional love upon in space and time as you were brought into this, into this world. This is, this is an amazing reality, and I really hope that it causes us to just be amazed afresh at the love of God for us in Christ. So he binds himself in covenant to us even before we were created. Okay? There are some other very important passages that show us the role of the Father in our salvation as well. So I want to take... Some time to look at those. Very popular verse here, right? Somebody want to read that for us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, so again, here we see the role of the Father. What's the role of the Father as we see this? He gave his only son, right? So God's gift to his people is... His son, and interestingly, God's gift to his son is his people. 1 John 4, 14, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world, right? So another way of saying the same thing, he gave his son, he sent his son, so he commissioned him to come and do this. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Okay, again, all passages that speak to how the Father has been working here. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, that is God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, we see the act of the Father there, making Jesus to be a sin bearer on behalf of his people. Romans 3.25, somebody want to read that for us? Okay, so you see the action of the Father again here. God puts Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He puts him forward as a sacrifice, as a wrath-bearing substitute is what that word propitiation means. So the Father is the one acting on this. Isaiah 53, or I'm sorry, Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay, so you see this giving, this sending, this putting forward all the actions of the Father that contribute to our salvation. And then here's Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Okay, so there's the will of the Father toward the Son. Okay, again, on behalf of His people. Hebrews 2.7, somebody want to read that for us? You made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor. Okay, so you made Him for a little while lower than the angels. Again, the action of the Father there. And then one more here from Acts 5.31. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. So that, that giving of repentance was contingent upon the Son working, whom the Father has sent. So, those passages help us to see a little more clearly of the role of the Father in our salvation. Now, so that this doesn't simply become just an information dump of Scripture on your minds... How should the reality of those passages that we've just looked at about the Father's work and our salvation cause us to respond? Yeah, amen, right? That's how it should cause us to respond is in worship to God. If you look, I don't think I put this one back on here, did I? If he, oh, yeah, I did. Okay, Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Here's the end. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Right. So that's, that's the end. It's praise to God for his kindness to us. In Christ Jesus. That's the effect that it should have. As Lucy said, we, it ought to cause us to worship as we contemplate the work of the Father in our salvation. So, so the Father planned or orchestrated our salvation. Now let's look at the work of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that I want to look at this is 
by referring to a few paragraphs from chapter 8 in our 1689 confession. You'll see that on the back side of your notes there. And the title of that chapter is Christ Our Mediator. So um, if you didn't get a, a note sheet, you can grab one off the back table there. I just thought this would be a better way to kind of work through this aspect of Jesus' work in our salvation. And as we kind of read through this, I'm going to stop at points and, and make some comments here. So in paragraph four there on your notes, it says, The Lord Jesus most willingly undertook the office of mediator. Now, that's really important because when we look back at the work of the Father, we see this, the Father giving the Son, the Father sending the Son. We don't want to ever have in our minds a disagreement between the Trinity, right? That the Father sending the Son, but Jesus is not coming willingly of his own accord, right? That he's like, all right, I'll do it type of mentality. So really important what we see here, the confession is saying, the Lord Jesus most willingly undertook the office of mediator. And look at this in John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now watch this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Right? There's a willingness there. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Okay, so we, we can see this, that the Lord Jesus came certainly in obedience to the Father, but for his people and for their redemption, he laid down his life. Uh, a passage that may help you to, to think through that is when Jesus is in the garden and you have um, Malchus, or you have Peter chopping off Malchus's ear, if you remember that incident. And how does Jesus respond to him? How does Jesus respond to Peter? Peter, put away the sword. Don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels from my father? We could end this real quick, Peter. I don't, I don't, this isn't beyond my power. But he was submitting himself to the father for the people that the Father had given to us. So it's really important to remember that, this, this unity that we see here in our salvation between the triune God. So he most willingly undertook the office of mediator. And then the confession goes on here to say, in order that, I'm sorry, and in order that he might discharge it, he became subject to God's law, which he perfectly fulfilled. Go back to Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. And for what purpose? To redeem those 
who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, that's, that's vital for us to understand here that it says born of woman, born under the law. Based on what we've talked about up to the point in this class as we've looked at the need for salvation, why is that important? Why is born of woman and born under the law important? Yes. Right, and very important to make sure we understand that's why the virgin birth was necessary. Right, he's not inheriting Adam's sin. Okay, so born of woman, and and this should cause us to think all the way back to Genesis three, right? The promise that was given that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Right? And so here he is. He's born of a woman. And then he's born under the law, which means under the authority of the law. Okay? We're under the law, right? all of us, and that law stands against us and condemns us. So Jesus comes under the law, takes upon himself the nature of a man, and he does so in order to fulfill it on our behalf so that we can receive adoption as sons. So that's why it's vital to understand that he's born under the law because we're under the curse of the law. And he comes under and he fulfills it and then gives it to us. His perfect fulfillment of it grants it to us as a gift and takes upon himself the wrath that we stored up in rebellion against God. Okay, so he became subject to God's law, which is which he perfectly fulfilled. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is John 8, 29, where Jesus says this, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. And then notice this. Who else can say this? I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He stands alone, all by himself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The only person that can raise their hand is Jesus Christ. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he gives that as a gift to us as his people. Counts that righteousness to us. And that's how we're able to stand before God. Okay, So he perfectly fulfills that law. Confession goes on here and says he also underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, for he bore our sins and was accursed for our sake. Okay, let's take a look at Galatians 3, 10, and also verse 13. If somebody wants to read that. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs, who is hanged on a tree. Okay. All right. So that's, there's Christ taking that wrath for us. All who rely on the works of the law, they're under a curse. And then notice, this is a great passage, by the way, when you're out evangelizing, you're walking somebody through the law. You know, it's like, I've done a pretty good job. Well, let's see, what, what does God 
require? Does it require just your best effort or perfection? This is a great passage to take them to, Galatians 3.10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Okay? None of us can say that. None of us can say, yeah, I've done all those things. So Jesus steps in and redeems us from the curse of that law. How? By becoming a curse for us. He takes upon himself the punishment due to us. Isaiah 53, 6, popular passage here. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And think of this reality. Rather than God crushing us for that rebellion, the Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all. So there again is the Lord Jesus and his substitutionary work in taking upon himself the wrath of God. 1 Peter 3.18, somebody want to read that for us? Okay, so there, there you have that, that transaction there. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Okay, taking upon himself again the punishment that was due to us. Confession goes on here in the next sentence and says, he endured sorrows in his soul, severe beyond our conception, and most painful sufferings in his body. His death was by crucifixion. While he remained in the state of the dead, his body sustained no decay. The third day saw his resurrection in the same body in which he had suffered. And let's think about what that means, why that's important for us. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized, notice this, into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there you see that representative work of the Lord Jesus Christ and our union with him, where his death, his burial, and his resurrection becomes ours. Right? When he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he rose, you rose. Now, that was brought into application in space and time at your conversion. But that's the reality of what happened back at the cross. And so this is what Jesus has done on our behalf. The confession goes on and says, In the same body also he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of his Father, interceding for his own. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We have a great high priest who intercedes on behalf of his people. That speaks a little bit more about his ongoing work in, in our, our salvation. And then here at the last sentence, at the end of the world, he will return to judge men and angels. I'm not going to say too much about the next two paragraphs, just a couple, couple points here, but I thought they were good as far as them speaking about what Jesus has accomplished uh, on our behalf. 
So chapter, or, or uh, paragraph five here says, by his perfect obedience to God's law and by a once for all offering up of himself to God as a sacrifice through the eternal spirit, the Lord Jesus has fully satisfied all the claims of divine justice. That's amazing, isn't it? There's not one record of debt against the people of God because the Lord Jesus has taken all of it upon himself. That's amazing. He has satisfied all the claims of divine justice. This is the, what this passage says right here, Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? I mean, you feel the weight of that. I don't know if you're ever tempted with that, but you feel the weight of that. It's like, man... How are there not sins? How are there not going to be sins on my record? Right? Just keep your heart going back to the gospel. That at the cross, he took that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands and nailed it. An awesome, awesome reality. Confession goes on here and says, He has brought about reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of God for all those given to him by his father. Hebrews 9.15. Somebody want to read that for us? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, good. So, man, there's so much in that one verse right there. But that aspect of they may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And what's the basis of receiving that? Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay? So that's the, the work of Christ on our behalf. And then the last one here, really helpful, right? Because uh, people can think, well, what about, the, what about the saints in the Old Testament? How were they saved? Right? Some people can ask that question. Confession is really helpful here in paragraph 6, where it says, The price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his birth in this world. But the value, efficacy, and benefits of his redemptive work availed for his elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world. That's, that's really helpful, right? So, we're looking back at what Jesus did at the cross. The saints of old were looking forward to the promises of God. Now, they, they saw it, and as the confession says here, mainly in types and shadows, didn't see it as clearly as we're able to see it now with the, the full revelation that we have been given. But here's a, here's a great passage in John 8, 56, where Jesus says this. If you remember, he's in a dispute with the Jews at this point. He's just said, your father is the devil. And he says this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Now, notice this. He saw it and was glad. So Abraham was looking forward to the promises that God had given to him and was enabled to see the fulfillment of that. Not in all full color like we see it now, but that's the testimony of Jesus to these these Jews, your father Abraham, this isn't anything new that I'm bringing to you. I am the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament speaks of and how God would redeem his people. 
So that's important to see. The confession goes on and says this. This was accomplished by the promises, the types, and the sacrifices in which he, the Lord Jesus Christ, was revealed and which signified him to be the woman's seed, the offspring. That's back to Genesis 3.15. Who should bruise the head of the serpent, the devil, also the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13.8. As the Christ, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. So I think those three paragraphs are really helpful in thinking about the work of Christ in our salvation. Okay? So we see the Father's role. We see the Son's role. And again, when I say salvation, just in case you weren't here, I'm speaking mainly about justification, not about the totality of what salvation means biblically and God keeping us and bringing us all the way, all the way home. But we're going to get to that in coming, coming weeks. Okay, lastly, with the little bit of time that we have remaining here, let's look at the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and his role in our salvation. I think the text that probably seems most appropriate to start with, at least, in thinking about the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation is John chapter 3. Um, so go ahead and turn there with me. It's too long to put it up on the PowerPoint. So John chapter 3. And I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 9 here in John chapter 3. If somebody would like to jump in there and read that, that would be helpful. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Oh, well, no, that's, yeah, I don't know why I, I meant to stop at verse 8, sorry. So there, there's a, a great, um, as we think about the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation, a, a great place to start that he is the one who causes us to be born again. So what the Father, Father planned before the foundation of the world and the Son came and accomplished in space and time, the Spirit applies to the people of God. Now, what we want to ask here is, so that we don't become like really mystical and we get off track here, how does the Holy Spirit work? In other words, does he just do this arbitrarily? Does he just save people arbitrarily? Like a guy sitting on a park bench, he's never heard the gospel before, he has no understanding of who Jesus Christ is, and the Holy Spirit saves him. No. He uses means to bring people to an understanding 
of the gospel. He uses the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bring about the new birth. Okay? Look at what 1 Peter 1, and 23 says. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. Now watch this. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through. Okay, John 3 just said it's through the Holy Spirit. Through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, so there's not any conflict there. There's not any contradiction. It shows us the means by which the Holy Spirit illuminates the hearts and minds of unbelievers and bringing us to himself. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now watch this. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, there's the work of the Spirit through the gospel. Okay, So that's the means by which the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit works. Jesus said, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Right. So there, there's, there's that need to understand what, sin actually is and how does that happen how does how does the holy spirit convict somebody of sin again does he just do that arbitrarily no watch watch what paul says right he's going to convict the world concerning sin watch what paul's testimony is in romans 7 7 what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means yet if it had not been for the law i would not have known sin for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So law said, Paul is saying here, what convicted me was the law. And when you go back to John 16, 8, the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit works through the means of the word of God to bring a person to an understanding of the truth. So what the Father planned before the foundation of the world and what the Son accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension is applied to the elect by the Holy Spirit. He is the one, according to Ezekiel 36, to take out our stony hearts, to take out our, our dead hearts that had no affection for God. And he gives us hearts of flesh, hearts that now love God and want to honor God and want to walk in obedience to him, hearts that are alive. He also is the one that causes you to see Jesus as glorious, as he truly is. He's the one who illuminates you to see that. John 16, 14, Jesus' testimony here, he, the Holy Spirit, what is he going to do? He's going to glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay? So then, there again is the Holy Spirit working through declaration, through a telling of something. And what he's going to do is he's going to glorify me. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, if I can have somebody read that for us. For God 
God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay. Really helpful passage. If you remember the context of 2 Corinthians 4, right before that, it talks about the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so here you have God working, just like it talks about in creation here, let light shine out of darkness. He shines in our hearts. And how does he do that? Through the Holy Spirit. Okay. And what does the Holy Spirit do here? gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when a person comes to faith, when you understand, man, Jesus is so beautiful and different than I thought. Even if you've been raised in Christianity, it's a radical transformation of heart. I was raised Roman Catholic, so I had heard about Jesus virtually my whole life and what he had done, but he had no effect. I didn't see him as glorious, as beautiful, or anything like that. But when the Spirit of God opened my eyes to see it, everything changed. You see, that, wow, this is who he truly is and what all this means. And it's the work of the Spirit to glorify the Son of God. He's, he's the one that causes you to truly say, not, not just in a word, but with a life that has been radically changed by him. He's the one that causes you to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Okay? And I want to be very careful how I, how I said that there, that He's, he's the one that causes you to truly say that because Jesus says in Matthew 7, many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, right? So they're, they're calling Jesus Lord, but they didn't truly understand that. He's the one who lifts the veil to look at Jesus and joyfully submit to him for the glory and praise of his great name. So that, that's, again, uh, a quick look. Um, I wish we had more time to to dive into that, but just a, a quick look at the role of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our salvation, and we'll work that out in, in coming weeks and what that, what that means. But one of the things that, that I really hope is that, again, the, the effect of just looking at these passages as we think about the work of our triune God in saving us will really cause our hearts to just soar anew as we contemplate his work in saving us from our sins, from the wrath that is to come, and forgiving us an inheritance in heaven with himself. Next week, Will is going to begin teaching us about the accomplishment of salvation as we look at the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if you're just joining us, this was part two of the provision, God's provision for our salvation We'll look more extensively over the next three weeks at the accomplishment of that salvation in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Father, how we thank you as we, again, look at passages, Father, that we've probably all become somewhat familiar with 
and that we can at times quickly read over without stopping to contemplate the greatness of them. Uh, Lord, we, we pray for that. We pray that you would give us grace to, to meditate on the reality that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have worked in making us your own and promising us this eternal inheritance with you. How we long for that, Lord, and how we thank you, Father, for your work in electing us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your work in coming and fulfilling the law on our behalf and taking our punishment upon yourself. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for applying this truth to our lives, for causing us to be born again, that we see Jesus as glorious now. How we want our lives to rightly reflect these magnificent truths, Lord. So please help us to that end. Lord, help us, guard us from these just being theological truths that we understand mentally but don't have any bearing upon our hearts. We want to be greatly affected by them. And so we ask that you would work that in each of our lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.